So, what happens when you die? Part two. Um, let's just have a very quick recap, um, and very quick in, indeed, of uh, just where we got to last time. You're, uh, remember that we saw that um, the definition of a human being created in the image of God is that you have a body, you have a spirit, the breath of life from God, a spirit, and those two together bring into existence a living soul or a living being. So we saw that we have a body, we have a spirit, we are souls or living beings, i.e. the person themselves. We saw that death is when the spirit leaves the body. That is when physical death occurs. And we saw that, um, that when, when death occurs, uh, when the spirit leaves the body, that the body just goes into the ground, it dies. The spirit returns to God who gave it. And of course, the question we're dealing with is what happens to the person, the soul, you, okay? And um, in answering that question, uh, we uh, had to start looking into all these places, didn't we? Uh, hell, Sheol, Tartarus, um, the bottomless pit, the abyss, Hades, the bosom of Abraham or Abraham's side, also known as paradise, Gehenna, the lake of fire, and heaven and there's a long list there and we've kind of been working our way through it haven't we and uh, what we've kind of basically seen so far we saw that hell is just the the English transliteration of a Hebrew word Sheol so in some ways it's good to put the word hell on one side because the Bible translators use it all over the place irrespective of what the actual Greek word is so so try and forget the word hell at least for the time being put it to one side we we saw that and uh, we, we saw as well that when you start at the beginning of the Bible, you get a little bit of the picture. And as we go through right to the end of the New Testament, kind of it becomes clear and we get more and more details, like the camera pans out and you see the, the whole panorama in front of you. And what we saw is that in the Old Testament, uh, the place of the dead was called Sheol, just a Old Testament word, Hebrew word, Sheol. And it just meant the place of the dead. Uh, it came from uh, the word hollow. And uh, we saw that this place was, was in the bowels of the earth, under the earth somewhere. And uh, we saw that it was just the place of the dead in, in a very general sense. And we saw that unbelievers and believers went there. Okay. Now, as we come into the New Testament, we get more details. And we find out that this place, Sheol, the Hebrew word Sheol, this place of the dead, is actually made up of three compartments. And uh, now we move into you know, the Greek language and uh, we see that one of the compartments was called Hades and that's where unbelievers go when they die. We saw that one of the places was called Paradise or the bosom of Abraham. That was an idiom that the Jews used and that was a place of absolute rest and bliss and that's where believers went. And we saw that there was another place down there, a third compartment, which was called Tartarus also in the Bible referred to as the abyss or the bottomless pit. And we saw that what we've got there are the group of angels who during the time of Noah kind of did this really weird thing. It's hard for us to understand, but they were actually able to swap or, or, or change their angelic bodies into a physical body that could actually mate with human beings. And of course, what they were trying to do was, 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 was actually genetically interfere with the human race. And those particular demons were, were chained up in this third compartment um, in the place of the dead uh, called Tartarus and they're there to 
to this day. Now we've got other things to move on to, Gehenna, the Lake of Fire, Heaven, etc., etc. Um, but we'll uh, we'll get on to that tonight. And so where we left it last time is we took it up to the death of Jesus. We took it up to Jesus dying on the cross and him being raised again from the dead. Or really, we left it just before he was raised again from the dead. And what we, we saw is that the status of everything at the point when Jesus died was that unbelievers were in Hades, the unbelievers compartment. We saw that Jesus, when he died, went down into paradise, the believers compartment. You remember he took the thief on the cross with him. Um, and we saw as well that while he was down there, he zapped over to these uh, demons in Tartarus who didn't know that the victory over them was complete because they, they didn't know that Jesus had died on the cross because they were in Tartarus. And so while Jesus was, was down in the place of the dead, he was in paradise, obviously, but at some point during the three days and three nights he was down there, he kind of zapped over to Tartarus to proclaim the victory to these demons so that they would know that they were completely beaten. And uh, so that was the situation up until when Jesus rose again from the dead. You have these three compartments in the center of the earth or under the earth somewhere. You have the unbelievers compartment called Hades where unbelievers go when they die. You have the believers compartment, paradise. And you have this compartment for the demons, Tartarus. And that is where we left it. And that brings us up to the point where Jesus is raised again from the dead. And you remember, we left it last, last week. I was saying that a monumental change is about to occur in regards to this place of the dead. And that is what we must move on to now. If you go to John's, John's Gospel and find John chapter 20, and we're going to actually look at the... Um, the place where Jesus has just been raised again from the dead and he reveals himself to Mary Magdalene. So John chapter 20 and verse 17. Now look what he said. This is Mary Magdalene, all right. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. So Mary sees him, realises it's him. What's she done? She's, she's run up to him to kind of give him a big hug or something. And he says, no, don't touch me. He says, because I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, what's happening here? Jesus has been raised again from the dead, but he won't let Mary Magdalene touch him. And yet later on that day, he does let people touch him. Why? What's happening? Now then, we need to understand that Jesus, he died as the Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled the festivals in the Old Testament, the feasts. He died as the Passover lamb. Now, Jesus rose again from the dead on what was called the Day of First Fruits. Now, in Leviticus 23, you can, you know, read all about these, these feasts and that. And uh, you get the Passover, and that's when Jesus died. And then what happens is that, that, that after the Passover, the, the first day after the, Pass, uh, after the Sabbath that follows Passover is the Feast of First Fruits. So you get the Passover, and then the day following the next Sabbath, 
was always the feast of first fruits. So because Jesus died on the uh, sorry, because Jesus rose again on the Sunday morning, this is the Jewish feast of first fruits. Now, what is it? Well, the 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 feast of first fruits was 50 days before harvest festival. It was 50 days, like Harvest Festival came 50 days later, and that was when the harvest was kind of gathered in amid great rejoicing. But what happened on the day of first fruits was this. When, when sort of like the, you know, the Jews uh, you know, kind of like planted their, their corn in a field or something, after they planted it, they'd get something like a hoop and they'd chuck it in the field, and it'd sort of like land somewhere in the field. And what happened was, that uh, you know that sort of like all the corn or straw whatever it was that grew up in that hoop that kind of constituted a sheaf and what they do with every part of their harvest whatever it was is they take that first fruits and what they'd actually do is they cut it down or separate it and they waved it to God and they gave it to God and they said the rest of the harvest is coming and that's for our benefit but the first fruits but the first bit of the harvest that we dedicate to God and so the point is that what you've got is the first part of the harvest is on the day of first fruits dedicated to God and it's not for anyone else it's only for almighty God and then harvest festival or Pentecost as it was Pente 50 50 days later that was when the rest of the harvest came in and that was for everyone and of course what's happening here is that Jesus has risen from the dead on the day of first fruits what is he Jesus is the first sheaf in a harvest that's going to follow. What's the harvest that's going to follow? Millions and millions of believers who are going to end up with glorified bodies in heaven with Jesus and the Father. And Jesus here is the first to be raised again from the dead with a glorified body. And so as the first fruits, he couldn't be touched because he had to go to be with his Father first. And of course, what happened is that later on that day, having ascended, he came back down. And having been presented to God, then it was okay for other people to um, actually touch him. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, let's, let's actually see this. Well, well, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 a couple of times tonight. But um, 1 Corinthians 15, and just get to verse 20. If I beat you to it, just listen, because I'll read it, all, all, all the verses. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep was a common way that people referred to when believers died, all right? But we're going to see as we proceed through what, what, what this actual falling asleep is. Because one of the things we've seen is that when, when you die, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you're quite conscious the next moment whether in paradise or Hades. So it's not you, you know, some people teach that you kind of go to sleep, that you're put under a kind of spiritual anaesthetic and that you don't wake up until the second coming or something. Well, we're going to see it doesn't refer to that at all. But it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And we'll be back to that later, and it might su surprise you what it means. But each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So the point is, Jesus 
ascends on the morning that he was raised again from the dead. I know that there was the ascension 40 days later when Jesus finished his time on earth. I mean, then he wasn't, you know, since then he hasn't normatively been physically on the earth. But Jesus actually ascended the morning that he rose again from the dead. And he went to heaven. He said to Mary, tell the disciples I'm returning to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. So Jesus went to heaven. He ascended as the first fruits the first man to be raised again from the dead glorified because of course what's going to follow in the future is that millions and millions of other believers are going to be raised and be glorified like him so Jesus is the first sheaf of the harvest that's to come later now if you go to Ephesians 4 I want to show you something else that happened here when Jesus ascended to the Father on this Sunday morning and uh, this is the, the monumental change that I, I've been hinting at. And find Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, I'm going to start reading from verse 8. Now we've got a quote here from Psalm 68. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? You see, the bowels of the earth. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So here, linked with this fact that Jesus has descended into the place of the dead, now he's been raised again from the dead, and he ascends back up to heaven as a glorified man, we see that when he does this, Psalm 68 is quoted to say that he led captives in his train. Now, Psalm 68 is, is, is kind of depicting something that was common in the ancient world. And it was when an army came home, having invaded some, somebody or something, when the, the, the victorious army came home, like everyone would come out in the streets to greet them, and they'd lead their captives in this procession into their city. So the army would return, and all the spoils of the warfare would be at the end of this procession as they went through their hometown. Now, we've got to ask, what is the spoils of war that Jesus would have been taking back to heaven with him on the day he rose again from the dead. He's been raised again from the dead, he goes back to heaven and there's a victory procession in heaven and when Jesus gets there he brings with him this procession of all the spoils of his warfare. What is it? Well I'll tell you, what was the victory that Jesus was after? He died to save us. And what's actually happening here is that the spoils of war that Jesus had thus far were who? All the believers down in paradise. And that what we're going to see happens is that when Jesus ascended back to heaven the morning he rose again from the dead, he didn't go on his own. He took paradise and all the believers, all the believers throughout history who died and gone there, all the believers throughout Old Testament times, he took them all along with paradise back to heaven with him. And that is this victory procession that Paul is talking about here. Now, while we're on this, we'll digress slightly because there are two other places 
in the New Testament that use this picture of the triumphant procession of the victorious army. And uh, let's actually have a look at them. If you go to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to see here a victory procession where the captives is Satan and the demons, all right? Now, in Colossians 2, but it didn't happen when Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended. It happened slightly earlier. And in Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When the Romans crucified somebody, they, they, they nailed a piece of wood with writing on that, that said the crime that, that, that they were dying for. You know, that the price, this is why they're paying the price of dying. And of course, isn't it interesting, when Jesus was crucified, no one could find any accusation against him. And so what they did, they just wrote up King of the Jews. Jeremy Pilate did that, and he got into trouble, didn't he, with the high priest for doing it. But he said, well, I've written stands. There's no accusation against this man. And of course, because Jesus wasn't dying for his sin. He was dying for everyone else's sins. And here, Paul says, when Jesus died on the cross, all our sins were nailed to that cross on a, you know, a proclamation, as it were, because Jesus was taking our sins away. And then Paul says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, let's talk about Satan and the demons, he made us public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And there you have the picture that Satan hit his total defeat the moment that Jesus died on the cross. So there you have another, this picture of the triumphal procession, only this time it's Satan and the demons being held up to public spectacle because Jesus has beaten them. And indeed, this is why when, once Jesus died, when he was down in paradise, he zapped over to Tartarus because there was one other group of demons who didn't know that they'd been beaten. And so that's why Jesus zapped over to make sure that they did know that they'd been beaten. So there's this kind of picture of the triumphal procession in regards to... Um, Satan and the demons, but there's somewhere else that Paul uses it. And if you go to 2 Corinthians and find chapter 2, 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, and verse 14, and Paul says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. And there Paul uses the same picture, but there depicting not when paradise was taken to heaven, not when Satan was beaten, that was when Jesus died on the cross, but here of us now, Christians in this life, that God is leading us in a triumphant procession because he has overcome the world because he has brought that potential for victory over sin in our lives. And this reference to the fragrance of the knowledge of him, with, with these triumphal processions, there were different customs and things that they did. One of the things was that they'd all give gifts to people, or that if, if there were booty from the war, like possessions, you know, like things, they'd be given out as gifts to people. 
And, uh, and of course, in Ephesians, Paul ties that in with all the gifts of the Spirit that have been poured out. Now, the Holy Spirit has come. But here, this thing about this, this fragrance of knowledge and uh, of, of Jesus, and Paul goes on to talk about us being the aroma of Christ. One of the things that they do is they, 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 they'd have all these herbs and spices burning, and there'd be this beautiful smell, the smell of victory. And so what, you know, Paul's saying here is that as we follow Jesus, because we're, we're the ones he came to get, that, that this, the aroma of Jesus spreads through us um, to those who are round about. And so therefore, to end that digression, the main thing that we've seen is that the morning when Jesus rose again from the dead, the Sunday morning, the Feast of Firstfruits, he returned to heaven. He came back down the same day. But he returned to heaven first. He wouldn't let Mary touch him, not at that point. But when he did return to heaven as the first fruits, he took paradise. He took the believer's compartment with all the believers in it back to heaven. Now, if that's true, if that's correct, we would expect to find throughout the New Testament that when a believer dies, they go to heaven. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, what did we see happened when believers died? They went into the centre of the earth, where unbelievers went, into a different place, totally separate. But in the Old Testament, unbelievers went down, so did believers. Now, if what I've said is right, we would expect to find now, in New Testament times, since Jesus rose again from the dead, that when believers die, they go not down, but up. And why? Because when a believer dies, they go to paradise. Paradise has changed location. It's gone up to heaven. So let's see this. If you go to Philippians, a string of verses now. Philippians 1 and verse 23. Paul says, I am torn between the two, and he's talking about whether to stay alive or die. He says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul says, when I die, I'm going to depart and be with Christ. Where does Jesus live? No one doubts this. He lives in heaven. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is raised up, you know, isn't he, on the throne of God. So Paul said, when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Well, where's Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. Where was Paul expecting to go when he died? He was expecting to go down in the centre of the earth? Uh-uh. Up to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 8. And these verses are in the context of Paul talking about that one day we're going to get glorified body. He says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Where is Jesus' home? Well, Jesus said, in, in my house, in my Father's house, many mansions, I go there prepare a place for you. Jesus' home is in heaven. No one doubts that. Paul expected that when he died, he would go down, no, up to heaven. Why? Because that's where paradise is now. It's in heaven. And 2 Corinthians again but chapter 12 and just in case anyone had any doubts this will knock it on the head completely now then this is paul talking about an occasion 
when he was actually transported up to heaven. He didn't know whether he went there physically or whether he went there, as it were, spiritually, but he went to heaven. Now then, verse 1, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and we know from the later verses it was him. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That word caught up, it's the same as, you know, the word rapture, you know, caught up, that's what rapture means. Was caught up to the third heaven. Let me explain the third heaven. In the Bible, you have three heavens. You have the heavens of the atmosphere of the earth, the bird of the heavens, all right? Jesus used that phrase. So that was heaven number one, all right? Then you had the heavens where the universe, the stars are, outer space. The third heaven is, well, outside of the universe completely. The third heaven is heaven. It's God's home. So Paul's talking about the third heaven here. And of course, we read in Hebrews that when Jesus ascended, he, went, he passed through the heavens. Well, which heavens did he pass through? He passed through Earth's atmosphere, and he passed through the universe. At some point, he left the universe, went outside of it. Wow, that's beyond us. But uh, there is an outside of the universe, because the universe hasn't always been there. All right. And he goes on to say, whether it was in the body, I don't know. God knows. Uh, I know that this man was caught up to paradise. Right? So Paul went to heaven. And when he went to heaven, where was there? Paradise. But where did paradise used to be? It used to be in the centre of the earth. We saw that when Jesus died. We saw that throughout the Old Testament. So we can see here that what's happening is that when Jesus rose again from the dead that morning, when he ascended to heaven, when he went back to his Father in heaven, and that was the point he sat down at the right hand of the Father, because his work was finished. At that point, he took paradise and all the believers in it back to heaven with him. So now we've done kind of like past and present, all right? Because that brings us up to the same status that everything remains as it were to this day. So what have we got? Up to the point where Jesus rose again from the dead, you had this. Believers, when they died, went down into paradise in the centre of the earth. Unbelievers, when they died, they went down in the centre of the earth to another compartment called Hades. And the demons were at the centre of the earth, all right, from the time of Noah, for what they did. God, the group of demons there, God had kept them in prison. Now, the change is that since Jesus rose again from the dead, unbelievers and the demons are still the same. That group of demons are still there, no change. When unbelievers die, they go down into Hades. No change. For the demons, no change. For unbelievers, when they die, no change. But for believers, when a believer dies now, they go to be with the Lord in paradise, and paradise is now in heaven. So that was the big change. But now we've got to move on and see what's going to happen in the future, because there are going to be further changes that happen in the future, and these are what we must now um, move on to. And uh, we'll, we'll start first with believers, all right? Now, that in the Old, Old Testament, before Jesus rose again from the dead, a believer died and went down into paradise in the centre of the earth. All right, when a believer dies today, if you drop dead tonight, you will go to be with Jesus in paradise in heaven. But there are going to be changes for us all in the future. And uh, the next big change uh, deals with the fact that when you die, we saw what the definition of death was. 
Death is when the spirit leaves the body. So the fact is that when someone dies, they are no longer physical. Although we saw that, 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 that when you die, you can still feel things as if you are physical. We saw that the rich man in Hades, didn't we? But the point is, when you die, you are in non-physical form. And that is the thing that in the future is going to change because God has created us to be physical beings. So to be non-physical can only at best be a temporary measure, all right? And so the big change that's coming is going to happen at the rapture. And it provides the one bit of salvation that is still to go, all right? Because remember, you have been, if you believe in Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty of sin, past salvation. We are now being sanctified, being set free from the power of sin, but one day we're going to be set free from the presence of sin and uh, we're going to be completely glorified. So the one bit of salvation still to go is that even if you die tonight, you still won't have a body. That last bit of salvation is still in the future. Now if you go to Hebrews, let's just see this, that believers in heaven, obviously they don't have any bodies, their bodies have died, haven't they? And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, in the prior chapter, he's dealt with all the people in the you know, throughout the Old Testament who had faith and what the Lord was able to do with them. And uh, indeed, that's partly the witnesses that he's talking about, you know, all the, 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 the believers in the Old Testament. But it's more than that, I think, because he's talking about believers in heaven. And if you go to verse 22, he says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, who are these spirits? Well, they're righteous men made perfect. They're all the believers in heaven because they haven't got a body yet. So the angels, they're angels in heaven and they're spirits, but now human beings in heaven are spirits, as indeed the unbelievers in Hades are spirits because they don't have a body and that is a temporary state. And this is where we need to understand why the Bible refers to dying sometimes as falling asleep. Because what happens when you fall asleep? You, you go into kind of a unconscious non-existence but you wake up again almost life is put on hold and then you you rise you sleep overnight and you rise in the morning now we're going to see the terminology of rising is used of getting a new body when you die your body goes into the ground that's why you fall asleep the body sleeps because it's going to wake up you're going to get a new one that's why you get this terminology of believers falling asleep. It doesn't refer to you, the person, it refers to your body. Your body will go into the ground like a corn of wheat that dies and it will, you know, come, come, come back again as something even more wonderful. So the body will rise, it will, as it were, wake up. Now if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we can actually see this and uh, see clearly when it is as well. Well, I say when it is, I, I don't mean when it is as in what the date is going to be, but the event that happens, all right. Um, right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 13. 
says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And we've, we've done the rapture on other talks, haven't we, and in the salvation series, you know, that sort of Jesus made it clear to the disciples um, that whereas he was going to come back and establish his kingdom on the earth, before that he was going to come back and take them to be where he was, high in heaven. So that's the rapture. It's a coming of Jesus, not to establish his kingdom on the earth. That's what we call the second coming. The rapture is when Jesus comes to take his church back to heaven. That's what we're talking about. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time. And he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture from. Um, in the Latin translations of the Bible, rapio is the Greek word to be caught up. So that's where the word rapture comes from. Be caught up um, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What Paul is saying, when the rapture happens, when Jesus comes back to get the church, i.e. all the believers still alive at that point, all the believers who have died during the church age, they'll come back with Jesus. But they haven't got a body. So they're spirits, and they come back with Jesus. And as Jesus gets to the earth, he doesn't land. They rise first. They get glorified bodies. They get their bodies back. Only now their bodies are going to be glorified, just like Jesus is. And as soon as that happens, all the believers alive on the earth, they're caught up, snatched up, and they ascend up to be with Jesus, and their bodies are going to be changed. They don't get them back because they haven't lost their bodies, but their bodies will be transformed. And then the whole caboodle all back to heaven uh, with Jesus um, in actual fact for seven years and so can you see the time's going to come at the rapture where all their bodies are going to wake up and we're going to get our bodies back or those who are alive will have their bodies transformed um, go back to 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, from verse 47 And Paul says, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. So the body we've got now is from Adam, and that's going to die, go back to dust. But the next body we'll get will be from heaven, just like Jesus is, absolutely indestructible. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And we're of heaven. So one day we've got an earthly body, but we're going to get heavenly body. Um... And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Jesus was a human being. So we bore the likeness of human beings. But at the rapture, we're going to bear the likeness of Jesus in his glorified body. Going to be glorified just like him. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, i.e. a body that's going to perish, die. We need something that's totally indestructible. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, is it? Because he's going to say, "Day's going to come, and believers are going to be alive when the rapture happens. They won't die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And this word changed is metamorphoon, it's metamorphosis, like a, a you know, a butterfly. Mm -hmm. and, and it says, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. You see, those who have come with Jesus at the rapture, they'll get their glorified bodies first. And then we will be changed, i.e. those who are alive on the earth at that particular time. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the immortal comes, um, well, sorry, when the imperishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so what Paul's saying here, this day is going to come when we're going to get glorified bodies. Um, go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 and verse 20. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We have it again. Go to Romans 8. This is our future salvation when we're eventually glorified. Romans 8, I'm going to read verse 9 to 11 first. I'll start from verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Find verse 18. Again, still in Romans 8. I consider the present sufferings are not worthy uh, compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So we'll see there's eventually going to be a new universe as well. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's when our full adoption, that we're fully entered into sonship, when we have glorified bodies just like Jesus. And then finally on this, or this particular point, find 1 John, John's first letter, and in chapter 3 and verse 2, we read this. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, that's the rapture, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And when we see Jesus in all his glory on that day, we'll get glorified bodies as well. That's the change that is coming. And of course, what happens is that at the rapture, then all the church believers are raised again from the dead and it's back to heaven for seven years, while you've got the great tribulation raging on the earth. Let's see what happens to us then. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
and I'm, I'm rushing through this because we just got to get it all done. <laughs> I want to keep it to two, two talks, not 22, if you see what I mean. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him um, for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so we see here there's a judgment coming for us. We've got to stand before the Lord in a kind of a judgment. Oh, that sounds a bit ominous. Well, it's not, let me assure you. 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, verse 10. And Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, that's the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, um, wood, hail, straw, that's uh, what we do in our own strength, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What we've got here is the judgment of our works. And, 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 and that what happens is God is no man's debtor. Anything that he's done through us, he used us, he used our body, he used our mind, he wants to reward us for it. So everything of our lives that was brought about the Lord through us, he wants to reward us with. And that's what this judgment is all about. And uh, so what happens is, picture that you've got your works, this bag with all your works in, and you hold it in the fire. No one else sees it. All, all the stuff that was just you will burn up. No one sees it. But that which was of the Lord will remain. And he will actually reward you for what he was able to do through you. And then just quickly to Romans 14, to see Paul's other reference to this. Romans 14. And in verse 10... And this is Paul talking about what you call the grey areas, where it's just up to each person's individual conscience. And he says, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. See? And there it is again. So we mustn't judge each other on the kind of like the grey areas, because you know the Lord will reward us if they were right or wrong or whatever on that day. And so, therefore, what we've got is that when the rapture happens, we, we have this seven years in heaven, glorified but standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you go to Revelation chapter 19, we'll see what all this is leading up to. Revelation chapter 19. And if you find uh, verse 6, and um, this is immediately prior to the second coming, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, the loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And we know as well that it also involves crowns. 
the amount of authority that we have as we rule with Christ during his thousand year reign. But here the picture is that the rewards, as it were, for what God has done through us makes up the, the beauty, as it were, of what the bride wears for the wedding. Of course, the whole point is this picture of the church being married to Jesus is a picture of our utter and total oneness with Jesus in the eternal state. And then, of course, in the next verses, it talks right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that is when, you know, the second G Jesus comes again and the thousand-year reign of Jesus kicks off with the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate love feast. This is the time when, for the first time ever, the whole church will be present with Jesus physically and Jesus will literally share the love feast with us, the whole church. And uh, that, that, that is the Lord's Supper to end all Lord's Suppers. That's why we take the Lord's Supper as a full meal as the Bible teaches. It's in anticipation of that day when Jesus comes back. And of course in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks to the believers there that he kind of betrothed them to Jesus. And that's kind of like the status that we have. And so now we've come to the second coming. And we've seen that all, all believers throughout the church age now have got glorified bodies. So where we've got to, we see that now when we die, we go to be with Jesus in heaven, in paradise, but you don't have a body. Well, at the rapture, we've seen that all the believers who have died since Jesus rose again from the dead, they all get glorified bodies at the rapture, as does all the believers who are alive on the earth at the time of the rapture. So now we've seen that the church, New Testament believers, the church, have all got glorified bodies. So to that extent, their salvation is complete. But there's um, a couple of groups of people that we've got to ask about now. And the first group is, but what about all the Old Testament believers? All the believers who were in paradise when Jesus ascended, they were all the Old Testament believers. What about them? They've been in heaven all, the, all that time as well. They don't have bodies, but there's nothing here. This thing about the rapture seems to only apply to the church. So when do unbelievers, sorry, when do the Old Testament saints uh, get their glorified bodies? Well, if you go to Job chapter 19, I think we have here sufficient hint, it certainly satisfies me, to locate when it's going to be. Uh, if it doesn't convince you, fine, absolutely no problem. Um, you're left knowing when it, you know, not knowing when it happens, but you know, if you can work it out, do tell me. If you go to Job 19, Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible. Job 19, it's incredible what these guys knew in the Old Testament. Job 19, verse 25, well, through to 27. This is Job speaking. This is what he says. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Well, yeah. He certainly did that when Jesus came the first time. And then Job goes on to say, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job here seems to know that after he dies, he's going to see Jesus on the earth but he's going to do so through a new body that he's got. So although he knows that the body he's got then is going to perish, he knows one day he's going to get a new one, and that he will see Jesus standing on the earth. But it didn't happen when Jesus came the first time, did it? Because the Old Testament saints weren't raised again from the dead. Some of them were, 
Some of them were, all right, that's the end of one of the Gospels, you know, those who haven't been dead very long, their bodies came out of the graves, but they weren't glorified, they died again. That was just kind of like, you know, a, a kind of hint of what was to come. But of course, what we've got here is that at the second coming, when Jesus returns with the church and lands on earth and you get the wedding supper of the Lamb and, you know, you get the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, that is when the Old Testament saints will get their glorified bodies. Now then, another group of people we've got to look at now, because when the church is raptured, all right, that leaves only unbelievers on the earth for seven years. There's not a Christian in sight, is there? When the church is raptured, that's it. Momentarily, not one believer on the face of the earth. But we know that one of the first things that happens during the Great Tribulation is that 144,000 Jews get converted. Jesus reveals himself to them, and they kick off the most amazing evangelism, and millions and millions of people get converted again. So during the seven years that we're in heaven with Jesus and the Great Tribulation is on the earth, there are believers there who get, who, you know, get martyred all over the place. What happens to them? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And um, this is just after the second coming and uh, just after a saint and all the demons have been chucked back down into Tartarus because of course we saw last time that all the demons in Tartarus were released onto the earth halfway through the Great Tribulation, didn't we? Now they're all kicked back down again, the whole lot of them this time, Satan himself. And in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So this, these are the believers who have been martyred during the Great Tribulation under the rule of the Antichrist. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they're raised from the dead at the same time as the Old Testament saints. And they, along with the Old Testament saints and with us, we reign on the earth for a thousand years with Jesus. And here's where the crowns come in. The judgment seat of Christ, our faithfulness, in this life is going to determine the extent of the authority that we wield uh, as we share the rule of the earth with Jesus during his thousand year reign, okay? And, um, and so, so of course in the verses previous, as I just said, Satan and all the demons, this whole lot are chucked back down into Tartarus, the abyss, the bottomless pit, call it what you will. Okay, so during the thousand year reign of Jesus, we have church believers glorified, they got their bodies back. Uh, we've got the Old Testament saints and we've got the tribulation martyrs, all with glorified bodies and all reigning with the Lord. Um, now, the believers alive at the second coming who, who survived the great tribulation, right, because there were believers on the earth when Jesus comes again at the second coming. Now, they remain mortal and they repopulate the earth. Um, so, kind of, they they're going to be raised at some point and uh, you know all, all I can say is presumably that's going to be at the end of the Great Tribulation where the universe is destroyed. We'll, we'll come on to that um, a little bit later. And, uh, but in, in verse 5 in Revelation, you should be in verse 5, you've got the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years rendered. Now who are the rest of the dead who come alive at the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus? Well, there's only two groups of people. There are the believers who repopulated the earth who were alive at the second coming. 
and uh, so if any of those has died, they'll 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 be glorified at the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus. But also, we've got millions upon millions of unbelievers down in Hades. They are still dead. They haven't got bodies, and uh, you know so start bearing in mind now what about them now when you get to the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus the universe is destroyed by fire um, go go to 2 Peter go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and first of all verse 7 and Peter says by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment. Now go to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When you get the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is, is really a thousand and seven years. It kind of starts with the rapture and right through the second coming, the thousand year reign of Jesus. That is all referred to as the day of the Lord. And Peter says, days is a thousand years in the Lord's sight. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Interesting, this word destroyed, when it talks about the elements, obviously the very fabric of the universe will be destroyed by fire. The Greek word is luo, it means to loose. And isn't it interesting that we know from modern physics that at the centre of the atom, that the laws of physics as we understand them reverse and that particles hold together that ought to repel each other. If they didn't, nothing could exist. And isn't it interesting as well that in Colossians it says of Jesus that in him all things hold together. And of course what's going to happen at the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus, this universe has done its job. It's kaput and Jesus will let go of it. And when he lets go of it, every atom in the universe will fly apart. And what will you have? You'll have the most incredible atomic explosion, universe-wide. Incredibly accurate in the Bible. Well, they didn't understand that, but nevertheless, we understand it now. That's, that's absolutely amazing. And, uh, and then go to verse 12 in the second part. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. And so what you've got is at the end of this thousand year reign of Jesus, the universe is destroyed. Now go back to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, I'm going to read uh, verse 9 and, and, and 10 at the end of um, the thousand years, Satan and all the demons are let loose on the earth again and there's a rebellion, a kind of a replay of the whole Antichrist thing. And then in verse 10 it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, his lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there, there you've got Satan thrown into the lake of fire. So what you've got now, at the end of this thousand year reign of Jesus, is that you've got all believers throughout history, including the ones in the thousand year reign of Jesus, all believers are now glorified. Satan and the demons are now in the lake of fire. We'll be moving on to that shortly. But there's one group of people not accounted for yet, and they're still dead. And it's the unbelievers down in Hades. Every unbeliever throughout history, from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, as it were, throughout history, it's down in Hades when the universe is destroyed. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And the second half of verse 54. 
1 Corinthians 15 and the second half of verse 54. Uh, oh, sorry, no, 25 and 26 first. My mistake. We saw this earlier. No, we didn't. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And at this point, when the universe is being destroyed, there are still people who are dead. Now go over to verse 54, the second half. And it says, Death has been followed, swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, if death is going to be completely beaten, what must happen? No one must be dead. Everyone must be physical beings again. Go back into verse 20, still 1 Corinthians 15. We saw this earlier. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. But that means that everyone, unbelievers included, are going to end up alive again with physical bodies. Because that's how we're supposed to be. Death is a temporary measure. Death will be totally overcome. And then he says, but each in his own turn. See, different groups of people are raised from the dead at different points. First Christ, the first fruits. We saw that. Jesus was first when he rose again from the dead. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. That was the... Uh, the, the um, uh, the church at the rapture and then of course we saw earlier on didn't we the reference to the dead and those will be raised at a later date so the point is that what we've got here is that we're now going to see that as the universe is being destroyed and is no more that is when unbelievers are given their um, immortal bodies imperishable bodies and if you go back to Revelation chapter 20 Revelation 20, and we're going to start from verse 11. Um, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. See, the universe gone. I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged. So these are all the unbelievers because they are the only ones who are still dead. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Uh, what he had done? Well, whether he believed on Jesus or not was in the book of life. See? None of them were. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's names was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that what you've got here is the eternal state for unbelievers. Remember, Satan and all the demons have been thrown into the lake of fire prior to this, just, just prior to it. Now, all unbelievers are raised from the dead. They're given bodies that cannot perish, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now, that's too horrific to contemplate. But that is the eternal... Well, that's what we've been saved from. That's why I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so glad that the Lord has saved me. So let's have a look at this lake, lake of fire. All right, what, what is this place? First of all, if you go to Matthew, the first thing we need to know about it, Matthew 25, verse 41. 
Now, don't worry about the context all right, of this. We just want the, the fact that we pick up. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who, ye who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The first thing we need to know is that the lake of fire was created for Satan and the demons. It was not created for human beings. Human beings followed Satan in his rebellion, so they share his judgment. But the lake of fire was created as a judgment for Satan. Now, also, you will find um, that in various places in the New Testament, where again you get this of oh, the word hell, which they use indiscriminately, the Greek word should be Gehenna. And we're going to see now that the lake of fire was also called Gehenna. And there are various places in the Gospels where you get the word hell, and often there's not even a note at the foot of your Bible, but believe me, the Greek word is Gehenna. It's not hell at all, it's Gehenna, all right? And it's a place that the Jews called the lake of fire. If you go to Matthew 5, let's see some examples of this. In Matthew 5, and this is um, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That is not hell. The great word there is Gehenna. It is not hell. Can you see why I keep saying, put hell up on the shelf, try and forget about it? All right. Most unhelpful word. Simply an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Sheol, which just meant the place of the dead. That's all. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. No, not hell. It's Gehenna. Chapter 10. Still Matthew, chapter 10. Verse 28. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, because of course you, you can't ever, a body can be temporarily gone, can't it? Gone. Dead. It'll be raised from the dead eventually, but it's gone, dead. But you will never cease to exist. You, I, we're souls. You, you can never, you will always be quite consciously, except when you're asleep in this life, you'll always be fully conscious. You can't ever be destroyed. And he said, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word destroy there means perish a state of eternal destruction, but in hell, and it's not hell, in the Greek it's Gehenna, it's as simple as that. So why did the Jews call the lake of fire Gehenna? Gehenna means the valley of Hinnom, and it was a place just outside of Jerusalem, and it had a dreadful history, and at, at various times it was the site of an altar to a god called Molech. And Molech was an idol, obviously a false god, completely demonic. And he was one of the idols that Israel, at various points in their history, kept worshipping, falling into, a Canaanite idol. And Molech demanded the sacrifice, usually of babies, by fire. And what would happen is, there was a bronze statue of Molech, massive statue, and there, he, he held this like big, like, well, dish, and, and the fires were stoked up underneath it. And, and it, it's impossible to understand this, but they would throw their little babies into that dish as a sacrifice to Molech. And they're, they're, we, we haven't really got time to read it, but if I just give you the references, if you read 2 Kings 16 verse 3, 
and 2 Kings 23 verse 10, you will see various points at Israel's history when they were sacrificing to Molech in, a, in, in that um, place. And we'll just look at Jeremiah, just, just, just look at a Jeremiah reference to it. And in Jeremiah 7, and in verse 31, the prophet says this, They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himon, the valley of Himon, Gehenna, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. So there's another reference to this idolatry. Now what happened was, because eventually Israel got to the point it didn't do it anymore, and as Jerusalem was built up more and more, this valley was just outside, it became Jerusalem's rubbish dump. And what would happen is all the rubbish was there and they would keep it burning the whole time, obviously to keep putrefaction down. So there'd be a continual burning, this rubbish dump that was burning all the time. And uh, also uh, various criminals who were executed, they would throw their bodies on this burning dump in the Valley of Gehinnom, where people, babies had been sacrificed by fire. And so can you see how appropriate it was that the Jews should have taken that place, its name, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and used that as the name for the lake of fire where unbelievers spend the eternal state burning. That's the connection. And um, so once we get to this state, we now have every human being throughout history has been raised again from the dead. They've got imperishable bodies that can't be destroyed. Believers thus far in paradise in heaven. Unbelievers in the lake of fire. But uh, there's no universe. So now all that exists is heaven and the lake of fire. Alright? There's no universe. So go to Revelation 21, because we've got to say, well, what happens next? The universe is gone. All there is is Gehenna, the lake of fire, and heaven. Revelation 21. Obviously, our, all our stuff in Revelation 19, 20, and 21 is because it's a chronological account. And John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They'd gone sort of fat. Only it was a bit more than a fat. It was a, a universe-wide atomic explosion, but they'd gone. Now a new universe and a new planet Earth are created. And he said, I saw, and, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So this most beautiful place, most beautiful place descends. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. So what's, what's happening here? God has created a new universe and a new planet Earth. Now, What's the new Jerusalem? It's heaven. Heaven, which has always been outside of the universe, obviously, because heaven was there before the universe existed. Heaven enters this newly created universe and lands 
on planet Earth. So that all God's Old Testament promises that he would dwell with his people, fulfilled in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becoming a human being, but now fulfilled literally. God's home has now come down on our home. Planet Earth is man's home. How can you reconcile the fact that the Bible teaches beyond all doubt that our home is Earth and our home is Heaven? Well, because one day, when Earth is recreated in the new universe, Heaven's going to land on it, and Heaven and Earth will become the same place. Wow! Then God has made his home with us absolutely, unbelievably all right. And uh, just, just, just go back to 2 Peter. We looked at Peter earlier about the destruction of the old universe. Let's just check him out. 2 Peter 3 and verse 13. And he writes... Um, uh, whoops, sorry, I'm in 1 Peter, hang on, 2 Peter 3 and 13, and he writes, uh, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Okay. Now, we just got to look at something else now, because we've got heaven having landed on the earth, so heaven is in the universe. Remember, at one time there was only heaven, the universe didn't exist. So when the universe came into existence, heaven was outside the universe. Here, we're now seeing that in the new universe, heaven comes on the inside. What's the only other place, state of existence outside of the universe? It's a lake of fire. It's a lake of fire. So bear that in mind, the lake of fire is outside of this new creation. It's not inside it like heaven. It's outside it. So heaven has come in, but the lake of fire stays out. Now, bearing that in mind, Revelation and verse 22, and we're going to look at a couple of verses in the Gospels as well, might answer for you a particular kind of terminology the Bible uses of the lake of fire. Revelation 22, the last book in the Bible, and it says this, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates in the city. Tree of life in paradise, in heaven, now on the earth. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside, do you see? They're no longer in the creation. They're outside. And that terminology in the Bible, the lake of fire, you have the, the idea of the fire, the eternal fire, but also you have this idea of outside, the outer darkness. Go to Matthew 25. <coughs> Matthew 25. And verse 30, a parable. We just want the last bit that's speaking of an unbeliever. Jesus said, you know, it's the last bit of the parable, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or as other translations, throw him into outer darkness. Can you see the idea that the lake of fire is outside? Because the universe has heaven in it. Only the lake of fire is outside. Uh, still in Matthew, but chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus says, 
but the subjects of the kingdom, i.e. the Jews at the time who rejected Jesus, their Messiah, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So can you, can you actually see that? That it used to be heaven outside the universe, but now it's just the lake of fire. Heaven is inside the new universe and planet Earth. Can you see that there is nothing now to kill, to destroy, to cause heartache, sadness? Can you see the total perfection and bliss of that eternal state? And I'll tell you, we deserve the lake of fire. But we're not going there because Jesus has saved us. What we get instead is literally heaven on earth for eternity. So let's let's just, in, in, in kind of tying up now, just go through that frightening list that we started with last week, all right? Let's, let's go through it. Hell. Well, as I've said, simply the English transliteration of the Hebrew word Sheol, uh, used willy-nilly all over the place by New Testament translators. Try and forget the word hell. In the Bible, whenever you see the word hell, it will be in the New Testament and you've got to find out from the Greek what it actually is, right? So put hell to one side. Sheol. Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for place of the dead. And uh, as we saw, it, it, it kind of, all the dead went there, unbelievers as well as believers. Hades. Well, we saw that the, unbel- the, the, the place of the dead had three compartments. Hades is the name the Bible gives to the unbelievers compartment. Tartarus, also known as the bottomless pit or the abyss. That's where the demons who got up to their tricks at the time of Noah are kept. Um, the third compartment down in the Sheol, the place of the dead, was the bosom of Abraham, Abraham's side, or paradise, two names. And that was the believer's compartment. Um, Gehenna, another name for the lake of fire, and we've seen that. And of course heaven, where God lives. And of course what happens is that Hades and Tartarus all end up in the lake of fire and uh, paradise as we saw when Jesus rose from the dead ended up in heaven and uh, we know we saw that as we went through the Bible as the camera panned out we got more and more all these details until now we've got the whole picture and uh, well so you know now you know all that but a couple of final points um, bear in mind in Matthew 7 we won't actually look at it but uh, Jesus spoke about the broad and the narrow way and the broad way that leads to destruction, and the narrow way that leads to life. The frightening thing is that Jesus said the majority of people will end up on the broad way to destruction, and only few there be that find the narrow way. The vast majority of, 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 of human beings throughout history end up in the lake of fire. That's, that's simply a fact. Second, I used to theorise, because I like theorising, um, that, 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 that the lake of fire, that Gehenna, was actually the destroyed old universe. That would be perfect, wouldn't it? You know, like the universe goes up in atomic flames. And I kind of thought that that became the lake of fire. And I used to think that was brilliant, you know, and I really did. Um, Until I read... (laughs) Because this often happens to my theories. They're absolutely brilliant. And then I read something in the Bible. And uh, in Revelation 19, verse 20, we've already... um, It says, The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf... And he says, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. And the problem is, that's at the second coming. So that was a thousand years before the universe was destroyed. So that was a rather nice theory, and possibly you've heard me expound it in the past. 
uh, well, it's rotten. <laughs> All right, so question, where did the lake of fire come from and how long has it been? They haven't got a clue. Can't, can't even begin to, to, to answer that. But uh, to end up on another of my theories, but this one, I think, is a goodie. Um, we saw, didn't we, that paradise was um, a Persian word that meant a walled garden, garden with a wall around it. Now, let me show you something. In Revelation chapter 22, and um, I want verse 2. Revelation 22 verse 2, what do we find? Now this is describing heaven once it's landed on earth. Um, and it says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Alright? Um, the tree of life. Right. Because of course paradise went to heaven. The tree of life was in paradise, wasn't it? Uh, go, go to Genesis chapter 2 now. Genesis chapter 2 and uh, find verse 8. And uh, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, and it says in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. So the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden, all right? And we've seen that the tree of life in the eternal state is in paradise, in heaven, okay? Now, we've seen that paradise was at the centre of the earth, wasn't it? And it went up into heaven. We now see that the tree of life is in paradise. Well, I wonder if the tree of life was in paradise when it was in the centre of the earth. And the Garden of Eden had the tree of life in it. I wonder if all these places are the same place. I think it is. I think it is. Now go to Ezekiel 28. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago, didn't we? And it's kind of, uh, there's a parallel passage in um, Isaiah, but we want the uh, Ezekiel one. And it's kind of a, a, a peep behind the cosmic curtain type thing at Satan and why he fell. Uh, but Ezekiel 28 and verse 11. And, uh, and th this is all about how beautiful Saint was and why he fell in that. And it says, You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz. Uh, your settings were made of gold. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain. You walked among the fire, etc. We actually, look, and then it talks about how it was expelled from heaven. We looked at this a few weeks ago, didn't we? So this is Satan in heaven before he fell, before he rebelled against God. But look at me, in verse 13, it says, you were in Eden, in the garden of God. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that before the universe was created, there was a God, God had a garden in heaven. It was called the Garden of Eden. All right, and the tree of life was there, because that's where it started off. The Garden of Eden, where God put Adam and Eve, I, I think that was, the, I think that was, came down from heaven. It's God's garden. And, and, and then, when Adam and Eve were expelled from it, so they couldn't get to the tree of life, because the tree of life, and remember, paradise means a walled garden, all right? It went down into the centre of the earth, paradise. And then when Jesus rose again from the dead, he took it back up to heaven with him. And so, if you see, what did Jesus do? He started off in heaven, he came down to earth, he descended into the bowels of the earth, and he went back to heaven. And in the future, he's going to come back onto earth and make it his home. Now, a man loves his garden. 
What does the Garden of Eden do? It starts off in heaven, it comes down to earth, then it goes into the centre of the earth, then it goes back to heaven, and then one day it's coming back down on the earth. You see, wherever Jesus goes, his garden follows him. <laughs> but I, I just, you know, I don't mind if you think, no, that's, uh, that's not right. But my goodness, I think the Garden of Eden was paradise. And there is only one Garden of God. There's only one Garden of Eden. It started off in heaven, it came to earth. Then it became paradise in the centre of the earth. Then it went back to heaven. And of course, in the recreated universe, the glorified universe, when heaven lands on planet earth, the Garden of Eden, paradise with the tree of life in it, will be back. Where did it start off when all the trouble happened? It was on the earth, wasn't it, when Adam sinned? Where's it going to end up again? On the earth. Paradise lost, paradise regained. My goodness, Milton was right. Well, what happens when you die? Well, all that lot, what I've just said, all right? That's what happens when you die. 